We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we discuss another fishing zone dispute with Japan, US trade concerns, plans to restart a reactor at the number two nuclear power plant, and the latest election news. We'll also be discussing very briefly a question of romanization. But we'll begin with this week's news and more rhetoric and threats towards the island at the opening of the Chinese Annual National People's Congress in Beijing. China's Premier Li Keqiang reiterated that Beijing will never tolerate any independence activities for Taiwan and that China will seek to promote the peaceful growth of relations across the Taiwan Strait and, in his words, advance China's reunification. China also happened to announce this week an 8.1% rise in its military budget for this year. You get through the spanner in the works there, with niceties. And of course, all this comes after Beijing announced a set of 31 measures it says are designed to benefit Taiwan nationals who choose to work or study in China. Well, here in Taipei, Premier William Lai said that the government will work on more flexible responses to what he called China's divide-and-conquer tactics and its attempts to weaken Taiwan's self-determination. Vice Premier Xie Junji has been appointed to head a task force that will formulate counter countermeasures to the 31 incentives, which, according to William Lai, are aimed at annexing Taiwan, while the Ministry of National Defence says it's still seeking to increase the defence budget annually from next year, but will not engage in an arms race with China. Now, the Tsai administration, of course, promised to increase the defence budget to around 3% of GDP when it took office in 2016. However, the island's defence budget has remained relatively unchanged now since 2014. So, Ross, where do we begin here? Should we begin in Beijing and their comments or the replies? It doesn't matter where you begin, Gavin, because it's more of the same from both sides. So China has a pattern of offering incentives to companies from Taiwan to invest and do business in China, incentives for individuals to from Taiwan to work in China, tax and ease of obtaining employment uh, authorization, as well as incentives for students from Taiwan to study in China. It's very hard for the government in Taiwan to counteract these. So if, if the uh, opportunities for business growth don't exist here, then of course companies will go to other places, including China, but not only China, uh, Southeast Asia, North America, Europe. Uh, for individuals, we all know the issues uh, with the stagnating salaries, uh, the perception that companies don't offer the opportunities for professional growth here in Taiwan. And you could go to Shanghai or Beijing, where there's a, a market of a billion people, and you might get promoted faster and have more responsibility. And the same thing with education. Again, we all know the issues with Taiwan's university and graduate school uh, schools. Uh, I lecture. I'm sure uh, you, you and, and Ralph also have experience uh, interacting with students at the university and graduate school level. Here in Taiwan, there's a lot of frustration. Uh, so when you have opportunities like this, of course, a large number of people will take these opportunities, and that's their personal choice. Uh, so short of an extraordinary amount of financial incentives, there isn't much that the Taiwan government can do to prevent this. I would say Beijing has run out of realistic choices in terms of pressuring Taiwan on the harder side. They've used their military flights. They've used some diplomatic muscle. It hasn't done a whole lot of good from Beijing's standpoint. The president here is still in power, 
she hasn't changed her approach to China, to her approach to cross-strait relations. And at the same time, China knows, as Ross pointed out, that their economy is offers more chances, uh, especially if you're an investor or if you go there and work. So China knows they can do this also without buy-in from the government here in Taiwan. Uh, they just simply make it easier for the, the you know, already freely mobile Taiwanese citizens to go over there, stay as long as they want, and, and, and do their best. <coughs> um, and I, I suspect, based on people I've talked to, we may see China use more of this sort of a, a softer approach, for lack of a better word, softer compared to military flyovers and diplomatic muscle. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't carry as much risk politically um, if Tsai Ing-wen or somebody else decides they want to engage in dialogue someday, they haven't, China hasn't cut anything off or, you know, damaged the landscape so badly that that couldn't happen. Well, it's interesting about what Ralph said. He started out by, by mentioning the military actions that China has taken in, in the time since Tsai Ing-wen was inaugurated. That has not seemed to have alienated the Taiwanese companies who go and do business in, in China, or the individuals from Taiwan who go to work in China, or the students from Taiwan who go to study in China. So it's, it's very interesting how those harder options that China has used, whether it's uh, military or, or diplomatic pressure, uh, not letting Taiwan participate in, in global events, for example, has not entirely backfired with the public or, or with companies, because we don't see an embargo, for lack of a better word, by individuals from here or companies from here in Taiwan saying, well, those people really are, are nasty to us, so we're not going to go and do business there or, or work there or study there. In fact, that still is continuing. And, and now that there's even more incentive to do so, that probably will uh, continue to happen. And, and that's a big struggle for the government of Taiwan. We don't see the government of Taiwan saying, wow, those people are really nasty to us. Why would you want to go do business there or go work there or go study there or stay at home? So, so we're, we're st we still seem to be struggling here in Taiwan with uh, getting the, the broader population to react more negatively to China's actions. And that, that should be a concern for policymakers here. I did see that the government here sounded off fairly strongly over the past couple of weeks against China's new measures. They didn't actually tell people not to go, but they warned the public to look at all sides of China, including the possible hidden political motives behind becoming more open for, for work and investment. That's interesting you mentioned that because, of course, China does these things to attract Taiwanese people to go there on the premise that they probably hope that the Taiwanese that go there for study or work will end up supporting and being more pro-Beijing, shall we say. So when they return to Taiwan, they might vote for a political party that is more pro-Beijing. But do you think, Ralph, that a majority of the Taiwanese that go to China to work come back to Taiwan and are pro-China or they can simply have the same view of China? I think a lot of them want to go back to Taiwan. They they prefer to live here. Their families are here. The lifestyle is um, more comfortable by some degree for them. Those who go to China, I think they come back with a more uh, a deeper view, for lack of a better word. I don't think they like the new communist government any more or less than they did before, but they end up meeting a lot of mainland Chinese people and exposed to their you know, different different provinces, cities, ways of thinking, talking, eating, drinking, you name it. And they just, they, they have a better feel for, for what it really is. 
I wouldn't say that the people necessarily return or interact with Taiwanese uh, um, while still living over there, but interacting with their friends and relatives back here. I don't think they get a or become more pro-Beijing per se, and I, I don't think it's necessarily China's goal to make them more pro-Beijing. Maybe we should describe it as they want these uh, the Taiwanese who gain more experience in China to be less pro-separatist, less pro-DPP. And, and that that would kind of take us back to uh, Maing Zhou and 92 consensus and the policies that were in place between 2008 and 2016. I'm not saying that's necessarily the way things might play out, but uh, I don't think Beijing expects people to come back and vote for a pro-unification party, uh, but it might make it less likely that they would vote for uh, the DPP or some other party uh, like the, the MPP, uh, because those parties might have policies that jeopardize the stability of the interactions those individuals might have, whether it's business work or study. And if you're still over there during the elections, I don't think you can vote for anybody. Well, that, that's a fair point, uh, because there is an absentee bo- voting, so it might make it less likely that you would get on an airplane and return to Taiwan to vote. Uh, uh, but uh, again, on the other hand, China might be hoping that the people do return to vote f- for other than Not the DPP, not the MPP, which, as of now, by default, that's the KMT. And we'll leave that there. No doubt we'll be talking about it later, which, in fact, we will be talking about cross-strait ties later. But we'll move on. And this deals with Taiwan and Japan issues, because both sides got into a fresh spat this week over fishing zones. Now, fisheries associations are once again calling on the government here in Taipei to take better action to protect Taiwan-registered fishing boats that operate in waters near the disputed Diaoyutai Island chain. Now, that demand comes after an incident last Sunday when a Japanese maritime patrol vessel fired a water cannon at a long-line fishing boat which was registered in Suao in Ilan County. Now, the fishing boat was chased off by the Japanese maritime patrol and the incident took place in waters within an overlapping area of Taiwan and Japan's exclusive economic zones. Now, what made all this more ironic is the fisheries agency has said that the Dongban Chou 28 could now have its licence suspended because it failed to apply for clearance to operate in the area beforehand as required. Now, even though that happened, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs still lodged a serious protest with Japanese authorities, both here in Taipei and in Tokyo, over what it called an excessive use of force by the Japanese side. But Japan's representative office here in Taiwan has said that its maritime patrol vessels acted within their rights when they fired the water cannon at the fishing boat and chased it out of waters belonging to its exclusive economic zone. And according to the Japanese office, the Dongbun Cho 28 was in fact operating in the area without permission when the incident occurred on Sunday and the same vessel had been told to leave the same area the day before. Now, the Taiwan-Japan Relations Association, which of course deals with relations between Taipei and Tokyo, says the incident will not derail plans for an upcoming meeting of the Taiwan-Japan Fishing Commission, which is set to take place sometime in the coming months in Taipei. So, Ross, we've seen this before. Taiwan and Japan, fishing disputes, water cannon, angry words, protests. Well, what we have seen before, and specifically in the time since President Tsai's government uh, took over power in May of 2016, is a desire from Taiwan for closer relations with Japan, a criticism of the previous government that it didn't uh, properly handle relations with Japan, which I, I think is actually inaccurate because the previous government did sign many agreements with Japan, including on fisheries. So there, there's been a round of, or multiple rounds of talks, maritime talks, uh, talks covering uh, other areas of the bilateral 
personal relationship. And the outcome of these talks to date has been some very nebulous agreements, you know, closer cooperation on customs inspection or uh, greater educational exchanges. So we don't see any substance to closer Japan-Taiwan relations. And, And one of the areas that specifically lacks a substantive achievement, and it could be linked to issues like importing food from the Fukushima disaster zone, which Taiwan is reluctant to do. Uh, but but we haven't seen the substantive agreement on, on these fishing disputes. So Taiwan keeps fishing for some great outcome in its bilateral relations with Japan, and we've yet to see it, and then it manifests itself with incidents like this. I see this whole incident as being inevitable and almost pro forma. Japan and Taiwan are very close geographically, Taiwan has a massive fishing fleet, which has been known over the years to kind of live by its own rules, especially when they're outside of uh, local territorial waters. And Japan and Taiwan have signed, or at least talked about signing, quite a number of fishing agreements. And as Ross mentioned, the two sides are trying to get along better politically now. The foreign ministry may just need to lodge a protest because fishing interests here expect that to happen. Protests are quite routine. Water cannons are fairly routine, too. And I just don't, I wouldn't expect us to be talking about this next week. This has boosted sort of, shall we say, the more anti-Japanese segments of society here in Taiwan, where a pro-unification group went out to the streets of Taipei yesterday, Ross, and protested that the government should take sterner action against the Japanese over its persistent, of a, how do we say, how do, the way it oppresses Taiwan's fishing fleet. Well, that that's probably not the messenger that's going to capture public support, a, a pro-unification, a pro-China unification group saying we should be more aggressive vis-a-vis Japan. Uh, I think the public, though, does expect the government, the DPP government, uh, to be a bit more forthright. So, as you mentioned, there was this reaction, but but it's it's somewhat passive. It's, it's after the fact. So, to take it back to what we were discussing a little earlier... In these negotiations on, on the full range of issues in the relationship, it often seems like Taiwan is saying, Japan, give us something. We want we want you to be our friend. That's not a very good negotiating posture to have. And again, we see that Japan is holding out uh, for something more from Taiwan, specifically on the Fukushima disaster zone food issue. Or ultimately, it may be the, the case that there's limits to what Japan is willing to do in its political and even trade relations with Taiwan, and Taiwan needs to be more cognizant of that and recalibrate its expectations. Again, I don't... The protests are routine. I've, I've, this happened under Ma ying It may have happened before him. There's a certain element of people who don't... Well, they, they think that Taiwan should have more waters. There's the Senkaku issue out there. There's also the fishing interests who think that they should be able to just do whatever they want in anybody's waters. And then you have a very, very small fraction of a fraction of Taiwanese people who are anti-Japan. So you put all those together, you have a non-story. A non-story that appears every six months. There we yeah, go. There we like go. <laughs> anyway, another story that appears every few months, or it has recently anyway, that is of a nuclear power. Now, the Atomic Energy Council this week approved an application by Thai Power to restart the second reactor at the number two nuclear power plant, which is located in New Taipei's Wanli district. And that, needless to say, led to calls by environmental groups for lawmakers to vote a big nay to the request, while Thai Power said that if lawmakers allow the reactor to be brought back online, it will boost operating power reserve margins by 3%.
Now, lawmakers and government agencies will now review the report by the Atomic Energy Council before making a final decision on whether to restart the reactor. But the government also said that even if lawmakers do vote to restart the reactor, it will not affect the Tsai administration's plans to make Taiwan nuclear-free by 2025. So, of course, Ross, this operating margin at 3% might not sound like a lot, though, but it is, because, of course, last summer we had some rather um, surprising power outages because of a lack of a reserve margin. I think it might come as a surprise to a lot of listeners that, according to media reports, the reserve uh, in recent days, weeks, uh, has been a historical low during the winter. We did have some warm days uh, earlier in March, not notwithstanding today's weather. Uh, but but uh, you know, people expect that the reserve gets low during the, the very hot summer months because of the use of aircons. Uh, but, but we have lows now. So it shows that there are serious issues that need to be addressed. You know, every time this issue comes up on your program, Gavin, you know, we're having a very similar conversation and identifying the issues. We're not identifying solutions. The one solution that seems to have been identified is we're going to phase out nuclear power by 2025. That's a goal of the government. I'm a big supporter of governments pursuing policies that they said they would, because that's what the voters put them in office for. However, uh, the if the government does want to phase out nuclear by 2025, the, the, again, the same conversation keeps coming up. What is going to make up for it? So all the talk about renewables, solar, uh, wind, up to now, we know it cannot make up for what would be lost by shutting off all the nuclear reactors. So we're still struggling here, and uh, it really behooves the government to be a bit more forceful in what their solutions are and, and not to let Thai Power dither because Thai Power is, is ultimately a state-owned company. They're, they're often caught in the middle between what the executive branch wants and what legislators press, pressure them to do. Uh, but but they have to, the, the Thai Power takes its direction from the executive branch. So we still need some more forceful solutions, some clear solutions, frankly, some achievable solutions to be enunciated by the policymakers. 2025 is the goal that, pardon the cynicism, but that takes us past a second term under Tsai Ing-wen. And we would have another president who could go and look at this and say, well, maybe not. And then the other previous governments, uh, Tsai as well as Ma ying could say, well, somebody else is in power. And um, I think everybody knows that, as Ross pointed out, Nuclear power is uh, is a offers a much steadier supply of energy than any of these renewable projects do. Renewables are expensive; they're premature. They haven't developed developed to a point yet where they can really supply anything. And at some point, I suspect that somebody will bring out the idea. Maybe Thai Power can tell people this more staunchly than it does that if you burn oil and coal and other things, that contributes to the pollution problems we have here. We've had a lot of bad air days over the past year, so that might end up in the mix somewhere in this debate as well. Right, I mean, Ross, you used some interesting words there. Thai power dithering. Now, of course, you use the word Thai power dithering, but of course, uh, environmentalists have used the word Thai power dictating. Well, again, Thai power, as, as a state-owned company, can only do uh, what it is funded to do by the legislature, 
which has to approve a, a lot of the expenditures and the budgets and things like that, and ultimately what the officials and the executive branch dictate to Thai Power to do. It, it's just not an independent decision-making entity. Uh, so when they are caught in the middle between these significant stakeholders, uh, they, they cannot make their own decisions. So it ultimately, uh, although the legislative union ha has enormous power, there's more power in the executive branch here, especially at a time when we have unified government. So the DPP has a majority in the legislative union. DPP controls the executive branch. Uh, so the, the government needs to direct Thai power what to do, whether that includes raising the rates, which... Yeah, of course, uh, the KMT would say, how could you do this to, to the oppressed people, make them pay more for electricity? Mm -hmm. The media would jump on that as well and criticize. Uh, this is something the government should not fear. Uh, if they want to achieve the goal of uh, reducing the use of nuclear, they want to increase the reserves, uh, then yes, prices might have to go up, along with some other policies. That, that might include accelerating the decision-making process for wind, which, uh, you know, we don't have we won't have to get into it in this conversation, but people who follow the, the implementation of the wind industry, both onshore and offshore, know that uh, there's there's also been some dithering there uh, with, with the decision makers. And it's very difficult to see a pathway when large offshore wind projects will actually come online. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we once again have a bevy of local election news to wade through, and we'll begin with the DPP, where we saw some primary results this week. Now, veteran lawmaker Chen Chi Mai won the party primary for nominee for this year's Kaohsiung mayoral election, and there he's looking, of course, to replace Chen Ju. Now, Chen Chi Mai, of course, served as the city's acting mayor for nearly a year in 2005, after then-mayor Frank Scher was appointed premier. Now, DPP lawmaker Huang Weizhe won the party's primary for the Tainan mayoral race, which proved rather heated, and the would-be candidates actually ended up hurling accusations at each other for about four weeks until President Tsai Ing-wen called for a ban on slander in the primary. And in the DPP's Jai County Commissioner primary, former Council of Agriculture Deputy Minister Wang Zhangliang won the poll in what turned out to be a rather controversial ballot that also saw several arrests as part of an investigation into alleged bribery and election-rated gambling. Now, in Taipei, former Vice President Annette Liu made it official that she plans to seek the DPP's nomination for the city's top job in November's election. Now, the DPP, of course, has yet to announce whether it will continue to back incumbent Mayor Kerwin Zhe or, in fact, nominate its own candidate in the capital. So, Ross, going back to some of these candidates, Chen Chi Mai, veteran politician, good choice there for Kaohsiung. I think you, you identified the key uh, qualification of Mr. Chen, veteran politician. So like a lot of people in the DPP, if, if we go back in time to, to the early 90s after uh, political opposition parties were legalized in the late 80s and the DPP started to run for office as the DPP and not as the, the Dong Wai uh, in, starting in the early 90s, uh, th there are a lot of people like Chen Shimai and, and 
sort of like Pasua uh, Yao is running in, in Taipei City for the DPP nomination, who've held just about every job imaginable uh, in the DPP universe of job offerings. So everything from working at party headquarters to the presidential office to having politically appointed jobs in uh, municipal governments, whether it's a county or a city. Uh, and, and Chen Shimai is, is somebody like this. So he's he's done a lot. Uh, he's he's well known because he has done a lot. He might very well win because Chunju is popular, and and that that usually helps uh, a candidate from the same political party when a popular incumbent is stepping down due to term limits. Uh, but whether he's uh, in, an inspiring politician or offers something innovative to take Kaohsiung to the next level, uh, I don't think he's yet made that case to the voters. But he does have something very important going for him, which uh, the, the DPP or America would also have here in Taipei and would be the same in lots of places around Taiwan. Um, the KMT doesn't really have a good candidate of its own. And of course, Ralph, of course, Chen Chi Mai replacing Chen Ju. I would say Kaohsiung, as well as the other, as well as Tainan and Jiayi, inevitably they will be led by DPP members. And I'm looking at the field of candidates for Kaohsiung. These are all fairly senior people. There are legislators and uh, people who I believe worked in government before, at least locally. So the city is going to be consistently represented by people who are similar to uh, Chenju, at least in their political outlook. I'm not familiar with um, Chen Shi Mai's platform or whether he is going to take Kaohsiung to another new level, but I think the DPP is probably looking at somebody of that level, of that caliber, as one who might be able to, if not run for president, then have, then take other senior uh, central government level jobs in the future. They need their DVB has been pretty good about cultivating its long term talent um, starting from the local election cycles. What about Tainan Ross? Huang Weijie, of course, running in Tainan as mayor now. And he, of course, he's now going to replace William Lai. Uh, I would say, see previous comments, Gavin, <laughs> that, that Huang Weijie is, is another person who's uh, held a number of different jobs, most notably legislator, well-known within the universe of DPP politicians, uh, has been on the scene for a long time. He's not a young man. Uh, you know, with all due respect. Uh, but uh, whether he offers something inspirational to the voters, uh, he's yet to make that case. In fact, uh, he's not a high-energy kind of guy. Uh, so um, he might win, but that could also be simply, uh, again, the incumbent, uh, formerly um, now, now the premier, William Lai, very popular in Tainan. And the KMT is, doesn't really have a strong candidate as of yet, so he could win very easily. That doesn't mean he's going to take Tainan to the next level. Now, of course, what Chen Chi Mai, Gaoxiong, veteran politician, Huang Weijie, Tainan, veteran lawmaker, Ralph. In Taipei, we had Vice President Annette Lu announcing that she plans to seek the DPP's nomination in the capital. That's going to be a tough call for the DPP. She's obviously uh, a veteran supporter of the party. She's the former vice president. She's also not the most popular person. She's tried at other times since the 10 years to make a, another run for fame and to establish her name in other forums and venues and just hasn't gotten very far. Uh, so the DPP would have a struggle between supporting her because they, they should. They have a historic obligation to do that. 
and doing what's perhaps better for the party itself, which might be supporting Koenja again, even though he's independent. Um, I don't know how they're going to settle that one. Maybe they will try to talk her out of running for in Taipei and give her some other position to pursue. And also, uh, another DPP personality has announced that he's going to run as an independent, uh, Su Huanzi, who uh, used to be the elected leader of Tainan. Uh, So we do see some splitting with the DPP, part of it driven by uh, this, uh, to use our word of the day, dithering, uh, whether or not the DPP will support Ko Wenjia again or actually put forward its own candidate. So you have someone like Su Huanzi, who really is a DPP guy, although he's kind of on the outs with with, um, President Tsai's administration. Uh, saying, you know, you guys can't make a decision on your own candidate. I'm just going to run as an independent. Mm. Well, of course, we're going to go to Annette Liu. She, of course, announced her plans officially to run in Taipei on National Women's Day. So, I mean, do you think Taipei, Ralph, is ready for a female mayor? I don't think it makes any difference. We have a female president. We've had female legislators for a long time. Uh, Female mayors and magistrates have run other parts of uh, Taiwan. I don't think that's an issue whatsoever. But, you, I mean, do you see more of the DPP actually erring about, oh, maybe we shouldn't ban Annette Lou from running because she could attract the female vote? I'm not sure that she could attract the female vote. I just don't think she has enough traction, period, for any kind of voter of any gender or any persuasion. She just hasn't really made it um, in, in spite of her, her legacy and her, the opportunities that she's been presented. Her, her gender, there are a lot of other women who are qualified to, to seek that office as well. Well, the issue is not banning her, Gavin. It's uh, They're going to have to have, if they are going to proceed with her primary, she, she just needs to fulfill the requirements to be a candidate within the primary. It, will, it would be very difficult for her to win a DPP primary in Taipei City with a number of candidates, especially because Pasu Yao seems to have some element of institutional support, uh, although it's certainly far from unanimous. Uh, so there is room for other candidates to at least be credible competitors in a DPP primary. So they can't ban former president, uh, sorry, Vice President Liu from competing in the primary, but uh, she's not a strong candidate in a primary or probably in a general election against America. It seems that Tsai Ing-wen is really struggling with this issue, whether or not to say we as a party uh, will support uh, again as we did in 2014. Anyway, let's look at the KMT this week in its primary news, where former Taipei County Commissioner Zhou Shi Wei and former new Taipei City Councillor Jin Jie Shou both registered for the city's KMT mayoral race there. Now they joined former new Taipei City Deputy Mayor Ho Yo Yi in the three-way party primary. Now the KMT is expected to announce the winner of the new Taipei City primary on March the 26th. So Zhou Shi Wei is coming back into the scene here. Well, his tenure didn't end uh, with a lot of popularity. In fact, the KMT kind of pushed him out in, in favor of uh, Eric Ju uh, to be, to run for mayor in 2010. So, uh, a bit unusual, but uh, second lives or nine lives in Taiwan politics is not unusual. But again, the the institutional support seems to be behind Ho Yo Yi. So the expectation is that he will be the nominee. Again, I think this comes down to uh, a bigger political question. This is not really about Xinbei Shi, New Taipei City. It's about whether the DP, uh, sorry, the KMT can actually field somebody for future presidential elections. As you know, Eric Du was, um, you know, he ran before. Uh, he's considered their 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 best bet, 
among a rather small field of people who might appeal to all of Taiwanese. Um, and I'm not so whoever they pick for New Taipei City in the future should be somebody who they think can can move on past that post into something bigger and better. Right. And moving on to trade news, where there was some worrying news earlier this week. And, of course, that was announced basically this morning, Taiwan time, where U.S. President Donald Trump announced his plans to impose tariffs on steel and aluminium imports to the United States. Taiwan's top trade negotiator, John Dung, told reporters prior to Trump's announcement that if Taiwan is affected by the tariffs, it will first seek talks with the United States to find a way to deal with the issue and prevent it from spilling over into other areas areas of bilateral trade. Deng also said that as a member of the World Trade Organization, Taiwan will not waver its rights to take the matter to that level if necessary. Now, if you're in case you're interested, the United States actually imported $3.6 billion worth of steel products from Taiwan in 2017, which accounted for a mere 5.6% of its total steel import value, while U.S. imports of aluminium from Taiwan totaled $57 million last year, and that was a meagre 0.33% of the total import value. So Taiwan steel and aluminium, Ross, big problems in America or not so big as some other countries will have? Well, maybe not so big as some other countries, but it would be painful for the Taiwan exporters uh, if they're included in the list of countries uh, that, that the tariffs are applied to. I don't think Taiwan should take it personally. It doesn't mean that efforts to upgrade the relationship, such as the Taiwan Travel Act, uh, potential for greater defense cooperation, it doesn't mean those things are not going to happen. So, uh, for lack of a better word, Taiwan shouldn't take this personally. Uh, President Trump has identified, uh, and his administration has identified, a number of countries that uh, that the U.S. administration believes are selling their products at uh, either below cost or with government support. Um, so, uh, on the basis of the national security provisions of U.S. trade law, uh, they're going to uh, impose these new tariffs. Uh, then it will be up to all these countries, not just Taiwan, to negotiate with the U.S. Uh, a lot of people seem to forget in, in this ongoing debate over the last few days, culminating in today's announcement by President Trump, this is part of a broader negotiating strategy of the United States, of the Trump administration, across the range of bilateral trade issues that the U.S. has with its trading partners, market access issues for Taiwan. That could mean things like pork. Uh, so it's not just about steel and aluminum. Um, people need to keep that in mind. So Minister Dung, uh, as he goes about preparing a response, has to be prepared, uh, or his boss, the president, has to be prepared to offer something in return to the United States to remove Taiwan from the tariff list. I was thinking that Taiwan, as an exporter primarily of finished goods, such as high-tech products and machine tools, might not be ex as exposed to steel and aluminum in their raw form as some other countries might be. And the same goes for much of Asia, according to the economist reports that I was reading earlier in the week. Um, I do believe that the uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum are probably a precursor to more tariffs on other things. And until we know what those are, we won't know whether Taiwan is going to be affected somehow. Uh, I agree with Ross that um, Taiwan's officials will need to come back with some counterproposal. Uh, Trump is a transactional president to, to, at the risk of overusing that term. So if you can transact and say, hey, um, we see your tariffs coming, but we can offer you this instead, perhaps it won't be so bad. 
One of the risks in this conversation for Taiwan, though, is if other countries rush to try and uh, finalize multilateral agreements, such as today's announcement about the CPTPP, uh, where does Taiwan stand? Uh, I'm not so optimistic that the multilateral agreements will actually be implemented with any speed, notwithstanding today's announcement about the CPTPP. There, there still needs to be a lot of things each country has to do domestically before this could happen. Um, so there's time for Taiwan to get involved in those conversations. However, this does come up against the political reality that uh, some of the members of these multilateral agreements, due to Chinese pressure, might be reluctant to let Taiwan in. So for something like the CPTPP, which China is not a member of, China might still pressure countries not to invite Taiwan in. For the RCEP, which China is a member of, uh, then Again, you know, China might not let Taiwan participate, e even if Taiwan wanted to. Then there's some of the other initiatives, again, China-driven, like the, the Belt and Road, AIIB. All of these are meant to facilitate business, and it includes, of course, China's nefarious influence over these initiatives. Uh, but, but Taiwan is outside of them right now. And if there are tariffs and, and countries are looking to expand trade re relationships, excluding the United States, Taiwan needs to be a, a participant in those, or, or it's, uh, Taiwan will be squeezed. It's going to be uh, facing higher U.S. tariffs, but won't be participating in trade liberalization with other market participants. Yeah, I, um, whatever's to come is something that we need to be paying keener attention to. If it, if it ends up being finished products, then Taiwan's going to be paying a lot more attention. However, I understand that Trump didn't use, didn't put electronics on the list, as far as I know, because the supply chain is so bound, is so globalized that if you do that, you affect American industries and American entrepreneurs and American jobs, and the same might go for some traditional stuff like um, garments, toys, things more lower value added products because, um, you know, some of the, the it affects the, the consumers in the United States, and Trump is trying to protect them as well as the, uh, the, the companies that are based in the U.S., Right, I'm sure more news about which countries will be paying high duty tariffs will come out in the coming hours, probably after we finish recording the show. But never mind, we can get back to that another date. And before we go, a DPP lawmaker who did run for the primary in Tainan this week, but of course lost, and that was Ye Yi Jin. She opened a big old can of worms when she talked up scrapping the island's Jew-in phonetic system and replacing it with a pinyin system used in China. That was all a bit much for many, and she went on to describe the Jew-in system as one that serves no practical purpose. And she was quoted as saying that the switch from Jew-in Fuhao to pinyin will result in Taiwan raising its competitiveness in terms of literacy domestically. And also, she said, the ability to attract more foreigners to study Chinese here will increase if we use pinyin. So all three of us have learnt Chinese. Ross, Jewin over pinyin, pinyin over Jewin. Uh, I learned Mandarin via pinyin, not Jewin, and I think it's a far superior system once you learn how the certain combinations or individual letters, uh, as rendered in, in the Roman alphabet, are pronounced uh, for the purposes of Mandarin. So once you learn how, how is a Z, ZH, etc. are pronounced, uh, then you get it. And I, I think it's a lot easier to learn. 
what the candidate failed to understand is uh, with regard to foreigners learning Mandarin here in Taiwan, actually a lot of Mandarin schools are teaching in pinyin already, especially private schools. They don't need to wait for some government directive telling them it's okay to do so. Uh, so uh, her, her point is kind of um, unnecessary, uh, but it, I think it's more important whether or not it's useful for Taiwanese students and Clearly, this is not an important issue for the voters in Tainan, and she didn't win the primary. Uh, I think voters are more concerned about picking up the trash and traffic issues in a municipal election. Ralph, Jewin over Pinyin, Pinyin over Jewin. I, I also learned Chinese through the uh, Hanyu Pinyin system, which was easier for me, of course, because um, I'm a native English speaker, so I grew up on ABC, so it's... Um, Hanyu Pinyin is very global because it simply uses the Roman system. That said, the Juin Fuhao, or the Fofomofo, the, uh, as they call it here, that works. It's actually more phonetically accurate. There are 37 characters, and you can capture the, the, the actual inner sound of a word better by using those if you can master them. They're not particularly difficult, but they're not the ABCs either. I believe that under the Ma administration, the government mandated all place names and institution names to switch to um, Hanyi Pinin over the way Giles or just the kind of randomized spellings that people like to use, which I took as a sign that Taiwan is supposed to be more internationalized, becoming easier for, for uh, foreigners, outsiders to understand when they read signage. And I would hope that any kind of real push to institutionalize uh, Hanyi Pinin uh, or ABCs over Bufamufa would be driven by that same line of thought to make Taiwan um, more more internationally viable. Well, there we go. Pinyin rather overdue in two times in a row. I've got to put my tuppence worth in and I'm going to say I learned both. And I agree that the Beijing's pinyin system does have its merits, but on my telephone I happen to use Juin to type Chinese. I have no choice on my phone. Uh, maybe I do, but I haven't figured out how to access it. So I just, All right. <laughs> I, use the, I use the Julian Fuhao as well. Gavin, are you referring to the rotary telephone at your home? No, the BlackBerry in my pocket. Which is just as antiquated as the rotary phone. There you go. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today in the studio by Ross Feingold. Good night. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget, though, to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps for all our previous episodes. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.